So even before the pandemic, married women with children spent almost twice as much time on housework and childcare than their spouses. And then there's this assumption that as more women have gone back to work, like that's less than we used to spend, but it's not. Working moms actually, even before the pandemic, were already spending more time on childcare today than they did even in the 60s. Welcome to It's a Material World, the show that uncovers why material science will change the world. With your hosts, David Yeh and Puneet Upadhyay. Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to mention that we have material science merchandise for those who want to support us or simply express your passion for MSE. To check out the designs, visit itsamaterialworldpodcast.com forward slash shop or click the link in the description. Hello, everyone. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different as we'll be focusing on the importance of being an effective ally for women in MSc, as well as strategies for allyship in both academic and industry settings. We're excited to bring on Ashley Golding, a solutions manager at McKinsey & Company, to share her experiences, what she believes good allyship looks like, and advice for women looking to advance their careers as MSCs. So thank you so much, Ashley, for joining us today. You're welcome. I'm excited to be here. Thank you, guys. Awesome. So just to start, you want to talk about where you are currently, how you got there. So the field of material science is so versatile, and it's evident through your career path from a PhD in material science to a solution manager at McKinsey, which is a leading consulting firm. Could you tell us how you got to be at McKinsey, and what does your MSC background come into play with the role? Yeah, I think like a lot of people, I was always drawn to engineering because I, I mean, I like to solve problems, right? I adored logic and math and I, I enjoyed sciences like physics, chemistry. And so I came to MSC because when I was in college, I remember being introduced to the concept of fracture mechanics and failure analysis. And so I became really fascinated, not just by how things were assembled, but by understanding how things broke apart at a fundamental level. And then as a PhD student, I did a lot of experimentation. And so I, I managed large projects over several years. And the group I worked in did a lot of funded research for different companies. So I got used to working with a lot of stakeholders. We were working on defined projects that were clear milestones. And I found that I enjoyed being so close to the issues that we were trying to solve. And it made me realize that I just found my work more motivating when I understood the specific problem that I was helping somebody with and, and working with them on it directly. And so later on during my PhD, I actually had this opportunity to go work with one of the companies that was funding my research. And we were doing this multi-year project. It involved a lot of processing of an extensive amount of aluminum for testing. And so as part of the arrangement, the company I was working with would allow me to come down to the site and oversee the processing and the material if I'd agree to spend 50% of my time working as a staff scientist and supporting the manufacturing floor and the quality group on various issues they were having. And so... It's actually really interesting. I was there for four months, but within weeks, I was sold on the idea of, of supporting people at work and not just products that they, they made. And so I really liked working with these, with these guys. They were good salt of the earth people. They took a lot of pride in their jobs. They just wanted to do good work and take home a good cha- you know, paycheck for their family. And I got a lot of satisfaction from helping them make their jobs easier and more rewarding. And so shortly after that is when I learned about McKinsey's work in operations and manufacturing. And I was excited to have a chance to put my problem solving and project management skills, as well as my technical background to use and helping improve manufacturing operations in all kinds of industries. And so since then, I've, I've gotten to work with a lot of really great people. 
I've worked with other metallurgists in copper mines. I've worked with quality engineers that make ice cream. And actually, just recently, I've been working with people who make some of the best lawnmowers in the world. So it's been really fun. It's super versatile. So what's really the difference between engineering consulting and management consulting? And, you know, what are the different values you can provide as maybe a materials engineer? That's a really good question. There's different kinds of consulting, as you mentioned. There's very technical consulting, right? So there's, you know, I actually have a friend who works for Exponent and does a lot of work actually doing very deep consulting in his technical field. The kind of consulting that I typically do is quite broader. It is still generally manufacturing focused, but it's a little bit more, you might think of general problem solving within manufacturing. And so I think one of the coolest things that I get to do is I get to work with people who do wildly different things. And what I like about it is that the underlying issues, like the underlying fundamental challenges are super similar. And so there's a lot of pattern recognition. And I think it's very similar to what I like about MSE, right? And as an MSE, we have to understand the fundamental physics and, and laws that govern materials of all kinds, right? Whether it's an aluminum, if it's a steel, a ceramic, a glass, anything else. And so the core problem-solving skills that you develop as an engineer combined with sort of this idea or this ability to stretch yourself across multiple different disciplines or multiple different fields really makes for phenomenal consultants, whether we do things that are very technical or whether we do things that are a bit broader. So I've actually known and worked with lots of MSEs that have gone into consulting, whether that's you know technical or general management consulting for pretty much those exact reasons. And so when you work with other people in consulting, with other consultants, is it more talking with and trying to figure out the problem? Or what exactly does a cross-functional team of consultants look like? That's a good question. It can look like a lot of different things. So a good example might be if we're working with a client and they are trying to figure out how to... I mean, generally improve the way that they're working, right? So they might be having an issue, either they're facing an external issue in the market. So for example, a lot of my clients that I work with now are really struggling with supply chain issues. So as the supply chain is constantly being disrupted, right? We're all having trouble and issues at home with trying to get new appliances or, you know, you have to go buy a new couch and there's no couches in stock and it's an eight week wait. Well, a lot of the people who make materials and make things have the same issues, right? There's particular material shortages or the timeline to get things are unpredictable right now. It has a big effect on people's ability to do their job. And so a lot of what we might be coming in and helping them with right now is trying to figure out how they build more flexibility into the way that they manufacture so that they can continue to make what they can make or so that they can work around supply chain issues with minimal disruptions to their business and to their customers. And so what that might look like is we might have a team of five or six people, right? There might be a, a partner, a senior a senior member of our team who is manages the relationship with the client, works directly with the client, knows these guys, has worked with them for a long time. They'll generally have an on-the-ground project manager who's managing the folks on the ground, managing the relationship with the clients we work with day-to-day, and trying to make sure that we're on track for however long we're expecting to be there to help work on the issue. It might be a couple of months. It could be just a few weeks. Sometimes for really large projects or for very long timelines, we might be working with the same client for two or even three years. And then you'll have a couple of individual folks who are part of the team who might play different roles. 
if one of the things that we're helping them to do is build a new forecasting model, we might have somebody who is an expert in modeling or an expert. We might have a data scientist who's with us, who's helping us figure out how we build, you know, an advanced analytics model to do more predictive modeling around the, you know, optimizing their supply chain network. We might have a person who is a bit more of a generalist who is in really great at just working directly with clients. And so we might have some supervisors or leadership within the plants or within the manufacturing site who now have to go use the model. And so you might have somebody who's working directly with them, coaching them up on how to use it, sitting side by side with them every day saying, all right, let's talk about how your 8 a.m. morning meeting it's going to look different now that you're using this tool. So everybody on the team has a different expertise. Everybody on the team generally is coming from a different place that has something super valuable to contribute. And so as a team, we're able to do really great things precisely because we don't all come from business school or the same kind of what you might think of as a traditional consulting background. So I remember with case interviews, there's different frameworks to have in mind, like Porter's Five Forces and whatnot. I was just curious, like... Is that a similar mindset that you're taking on with each of these projects or is like with each experience, you just kind of develop your own framework or your own through pattern recognition, it it becomes like just like more tailored to each project? It's funny because I don't know that I've used Borders Five Forces in like a long time, if (laughs) ever, on a project, to be totally honest with you. I think it's a lot less formalized than people tend to think it is before you come into it. A lot of it, honestly, is just like really good fundamental problem solving. It's not that different than, for example, whenever I was in graduate school, a lot of my PhD work was focused on your specialty alloy development for aircraft and automotive applications. And so you sort of, you kind of had a framework that you worked within, right? We kind of generally have either equations or models for how things crystallize or solidify or work. But then within that, you're trying to figure out how can you work within this framework to do the very specific thing you're trying to do. And so it's actually really similar. Like you might have a a playbook or a framework that you use to go and approach the issue, whether that is, I know what makes a good meeting, for example, right? I know the, the concepts and the fundamentals behind what makes a meeting really effective. Now, how do I help this particular group in this particular situation with the way their meetings are currently run change the way that they do them and how do we help do that effectively, right? So you can take a general concept, but you're always having to apply it in a really specific situation. And that effectively means you're never solving the same problem twice. Now, moving on, we just want to ask, like, before we get into it, where does your passion for equal opportunities for women in education come from? That's a great question. It's probably from my mom. She's a retired elementary school teacher, but before that, she was a computer scientist. And she's always pushed my siblings and I to learn for the sake of learning and to pursue whatever we were passionate about and gave us purpose, which she would always say, you know, no matter whether it pays well or not, no matter what other people think of it, right, it matters to you. And I think more important than saying it, she role modeled it for us. So I actually remember when I was about eight or nine, she went back to school for a master's degree in education when she started teaching, when she switched from doing computer science to, to education. And actually right now she's working on her EDD. And so next spring, she'll defend her educational doctorate. Wow. 
Yeah, I mean, I could have told her that I wanted to study, you know, an arcane form of rain dancing and, and she <laughs> supported me in doing it. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, congrats to her. And I'm glad you had such a great role model in your life. And so I think that was evident in previous discussions. You highlighted that it's not enough just to not be sexist. It's important to be an effective ally. So we just wanted to ask you and really just listen, what does it mean to be an ally and what does good allyship look like? It's a phenomenal question, right? And it's something like you mentioned that I'm super passionate about. I think technically, if you think about what is an ally, an ally is somebody who aligns themselves with and supports a cause or an individual. So if somebody was an ally to the LGBTQ community, that would be somebody who aligns himself with individuals in that community to support and champion causes that that group cares about, even if that person doesn't identify as part of that community. And so similarly, being an ally to women just means standing alongside and showing up with women to champion the causes that women care about. And so kind of what that means when you talk about what does good allyship look like, honestly, it starts with listening, right? What are the causes and issues that that group cares about? And it and asking what you can do to support them. It also means not staying silent, obviously, in the face of oppression or favoritism or other inequality, which I think is something we're starting to realize more and more. But honestly, it starts with listening because different groups care about different things and individuals within those groups care about different things. Not all women are the same. Not all women are trying to solve for the same thing. So it kind of starts with just, you know, showing up. Yeah, I was actually just having like a similar conversation yesterday about this. And it seems to really, I see a lot of similarities where one thing that when I asked this question, they were just talking about how in various like team meetings, they would give an idea and it would kind of be like silent for a little bit. And then someone else would kind of have the same idea and there would be more credit like given to them. And that was like something that I thought it's obvious you should give credit to the person who comes up with the idea first, but it seems like that was like a recurring theme among women in the workplace. Really, mm-hmm. It's like astonishing. But when we had this conversation, it just like made me realize it's important to properly acknowledge everybody and make sure credit is given, even though that seems obvious, I guess it's not always like common in the workplace. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it is it is so very frustrating because that exact situation has happened to me before and it happens a lot. Um, And it's interesting, something else that's really common that I don't think we realize is there's a lot of research actually that was done on in classrooms, even in like business classes, in graduate classes, where in these kinds of open forum discussions, the perception versus the reality of women's contributions. So, for example, in one class, the perception that women were speaking 50 percent of the time was held whenever women were speaking less than a third of the time. So women speak less often, but are perceived as speaking more in a way that, so what happens is that if if, if women equally actually had 50% of the airtime, there's this sort of pushback of dominating the conversation, which isn't accurate. And so interestingly, the way that women's voices get heard in common spaces, right? Meetings, classrooms, et cetera, is actually a problem. They aren't getting heard or they're getting heard incorrectly or not in the right way. And so these things that, like you say, seem obvious, of course you should get proper credit, actually don't always happen. And it's not usually a conscious decision to not do it. It has a lot to do with the unconscious way that we've been conditioned to hear women. 
And then in that research, did women also think that they were speaking half the time when it was less than a third, or were they very aware of the issues around the uneven split? You know, it's a good question. I can't remember. I'd have to go back and look at that particular study, but I want to say it was it was general. I want to say it was it was the perception that that data was taken across the whole class, men and women included. I'd have to check. But yeah, I mean, I think at the heart of it, part of the challenge is that, and we can talk more about this too, in the way that this affects women in other places in the workplace, but women are equally as conditioned to believe some of these things about themselves as men are, right? And so I think that's also part of the challenge. So I guess a follow-up question would be, Maybe we can compare times where maybe you, like you had an experience where you felt like you didn't have an ally in that setting versus a situation where you did and like the differences in like the validation there. You know, it's interesting because this this example you sort of gave of just not having your ideas enforced, it happens to me even now, right? Even as long as I've been within McKinsey, even as long as I've been in my field, it still continues to happen where, and it grates on me when it does, right? This idea or this concept of other people taking sort of ownership of my work or of my ideas or my teams. In this situation, it's usually my team's ideas or things, right? So I might be in a presentation or I might be in a meeting and speaking about the work that my team's been doing. And, you know, here's the things that we've built and here's the kind of work that we've done recently. And then the question will be, we should totally do this thing. And it's this thing I've just talked about. And I'm like, I just talked about it. We literally already did it. How come you are not hearing me? And that becomes quite frustrating. And it's, it's annoying that I'm not heard, but it does. It's a little different. There's a, there's a partner I work with now who is a big champion of the kind of work that my, my group and I do. We've had a chance to work together off and on for about two to three years now. And he's recently been working with us a bit more closely and it's very different. And part of it is because he's more senior and part of it is because he's a man, but he's in the meeting and he'll say, that's actually great. We've actually already built that. Ashley's team's done that. Why don't, instead of building it again, can you guys please go work with Ashley and her team to start, start with the research we've already done. And, you know, it's simple, but him following up on emails or following up on those kinds of questions and just sort of pushing this idea that we've done this already. Hey, you need to start with what we've already done. It, it does help a lot. It matters a lot. And that validation is super important. Does it frustrate me that I need that val- that, you know, that somebody has to do that for me? Yes. But is a whole lot better that I have somebody doing it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Right. I'd be a lot more discouraged. I'd probably give up a lot more quickly if I didn't have somebody reinforcing that. And in the past when I haven't, yeah, it's just, it's really difficult to gain, to gain ground. It's almost as if you have to sell the idea twice, even though that they already liked it the first time, which just seems like redundant and a waste of time. So I guess that's a really good example of what it's like in industry to be a good ally. Could you give us an example of like when you had and did not have an ally in academia? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Like, I think one of the things that is different, you know, as we think about the differences between academia and industry and what allyship looks in both, right? Again, it's a lot of it goes back to just showing up right? And reinforcing women's voices. In some ways, it's actually not that dissimilar. And one of the biggest things that I remember being an issue for me, whenever I was going to graduate school, for example, was research and getting proper authorship on papers. And I remember doing, doing research and I was a more senior graduate student at the time I was about to finish my, my PhD. And 
you don't really have time to be working on this particular paper, but a lot of the work that they were drawing from was data that we'd collected as a part of one of my projects. And I brought in another graduate student, a guy that was in our lab, was relatively new, he was probably a second year PhD student, and had him start doing a lot of the writing. But sort of had to be clear, like, the majority of what you're writing about is my work. I will be first author on this paper. You're writing it, you're compiling it, but like, it's my work. And so like having to align on that upfront, right? Like having to go and advocate for myself that I was going to get proper authorship on a paper. You know, I did that because the issue had come up before, right? The issue had happened before. And so I think that, you know, sometimes it looks, it looks a little bit different. What does it mean to have your voice validated in academia versus in industry? But it's honestly probably not as different as you might think, right? It's, Making sure that women are getting to present joint projects in posters, making sure that I remember presenting a poster with a couple other folks in in one of my research groups, actually back when I was an undergrad. And there were three of us standing there, myself and two of the guys that I was working with. And I remember people would come by and talk to us and they wouldn't talk to me. They only talked to them. We're literally standing right next to each other. And so simple things like turning and saying, actually, Ashley led that part of the work and like, don't talk to me, talk to her. Little things like that, right? Or or what allyship look like in those moments. It's still the same thing. It's still about reinforcing the voices of the people who did the work or did the, you had the idea, but it's going to look different. So then is there any differences between being an effective ally as a peer, as a team member versus like in a like as a leader, are there any differences there? Or like, is it really just about like speaking up and giving credit where credit is due? No, there is a difference actually. And we actually have a word for it, which is sponsorship, right? So as as a leader, as a senior leader, you have the opportunity not just to be an advocate for women, but a sponsor of women. Uh, And those are actually different. We talk a lot about the difference between mentorship and sponsorship. A sponsor is somebody who's going to go and create opportunities for you. I'll give you an example, right? So whenever I was in my first year at McKinsey, then this is a moment of allyship and sponsorship that really stands out to me because it mattered a lot for where I was at the time. But when I was in my first year at McKinsey, I was pregnant with my twins and I was having a, a difficult, bit of a difficult pregnancy. And my doctors had just told me like, hey, you're, you're not allowed to fly anymore. You really need to start taking it easy. I actually would eventually end up on bed rest. But before that happened, because I kind of had this period of time where I couldn't really start a project and I was about to go on maternity leave. I was having a hard time finding a project to work on. And I remember there was a partner in our office, this really great guy. I'd worked with him a bit before earlier on. And I ran into him one day in the office. We were just in the hallway. We were catching up. And I just kind of mentioned what was going on. And he said, you know, you're a great associate here and you're going to be a great associate whenever you get back from leave. But in the meantime, the most important thing you need to do is take care of yourself come by my office later. I've got the perfect project you can work on. It'll let you stay home and focus on resting. And that's what I did. And I worked on that project until the moment my, my, my doctors put me on bed rest. And to this day, right? Like the fact that he found, he, he said, you know, no, I, you know what? I'm going to create a project for you. I have an opportunity that I'm going to give to you to do what you need to do. And then actually when I came back from maternity leave, he also staffed me on my first client project coming back. And so he was a big sponsor of mine at a time when it really mattered, creating opportunities for me to come into projects based on what I needed at the time. 
And so that's what allyship looks like. I think more when you're a leader, right? Is it's more of this concept of sponsorship rather than just validation or support. As a peer, you can validate or amplify other people's voices, but as a leader, you have to create opportunities for women. So one thing that maybe I missed that I thought would be important in that conversation is asking you what you need. Was that part of the conversation? Because I know you had a similar story after the fact, like after giving birth to twins where they can't assume what you need, right? So what did that, what did that look like? Yeah, actually it was interesting. So in that particular situation, I was, I was talking to this guy, his name was Ryan and I was talking to Ryan and we were talking and I said, you know, I'm just, I'm tired all the time and they don't want me traveling. And his wife had actually, with their second child, had gone into premature labor. And so he and I had been talking about the importance of taking care of yourself. And, and so he was quite open to understanding what did I need and not making those kinds of assumptions. And before, when I first came back from leave, actually, before he staffed me on this first client project coming back, I remember coming back and I'd been on bed rest for about six or seven weeks before I, I gave birth. And then I'd been on leave for about five months. And so I'd been out for seven months and I was dying to get out of the house by the time I came back to work. I mean, I just, I missed work. I missed having something to do with my days that was not like change babies all the time. <laughs> and um, I really wanted to come back to work. And I remember talking to basically the people who assign you to projects and they said, no, we're going to put you on something local so you can stay home. And I said, well, no, I don't want to stay home. And they said, well, no, you need to stay home. And I finally got so frustrated where I finally said, would you ask a man this question? And they just kind of stopped. And then they were like, okay, well, we'll, we'll put you on the road. And they put me on a project that let me go back and forth to Miami because I needed to get out of the house. My husband agreed I needed to get out of the house. He was actually trying to sleep train the twins when this was happening and it wasn't going super well. And I wasn't handling it super well. So he was like, you need to leave. So actually like what we needed, what I needed in that moment was to go back to traveling. That was what I needed, but you're right. Like, I think a big part of it was, I felt like they were trying to be an ally, but they weren't listening. And a lot of women, when they come back from maternity leave, do want to stay home and do a project locally and from home as a part of the transition back to work. I didn't. And so not everybody wants or needs the same thing. And so part of being an ally starts with just showing up and listening, right? Mm -hmm. And it's funny actually, because then the very next project I did after that, which was my first client project back, which was also with, with the same guy, Ryan, was actually a local project, but I told him I need to travel, like travel to a hotel across town with the rest of the team who also was not local because I'm not working. I don't want to be at home because we were still sleep training. And he said, done, approved. Got it. And so a big part of that actually was the reason I could take that project was because he was able to, you know, he was willing to support me in doing that, which not everybody probably would have done. And so the idea of listening is a great one and asking questions is always good, but I think it's very important to know when to ask questions because it's a very delicate subject where like, of course, like very, very obviously like, oh, don't ask me questions like while I'm on bed press, like about how to help me as other things I'm going through. So as someone who wants to be an ally, how do you know when it's a good time to talk about something, when it's a bad time, or basically how to go about starting the conversation? I mean, I think that it actually starts with the question, right? Which is, hey, what can I do to help you? Like, what can I do to be supportive? You know, I actually asked a lot of my Black colleagues this last summer, right, in the, the wake of the George Floyd murder. And I said, 
like, what can I do to be supportive? And some of the folks that worked on my team were like, you know, I, I really could use a day off. And I was like, great, take it. Um, but I had some people who were like, you know, I really, I'm frustrated by how much we're not talking about it. I said, great, then let's find a way to have a structured conversation as a team about it, right? Like, but just literally just asking, like, what can I do to help? Like, what can I do to support you? And I know that there's sort of mixed thoughts on this, but at least from where I'm coming from, I'd always prefer somebody to just ask. It doesn't take, it doesn't cost you anything to ask. And you can get like maybe more info. It's very personalized there to see what exactly is needed from that situation. So yeah, exactly. And sometimes like, it's just, you know, sometimes the answer is I don't know. And then it's like, okay, well then in, in that case, you should just default to just being there. I have a good friend of mine who's going through struggles with IVF right now. And I asked her the same question, like, what can I do that would be helpful? And she said, just be here, right? Just, just be here. Just invite, you know, invite me to things, invite me to your kid's birthday party. Even if you think it's going to make me uncomfortable, just like, just be there. I said, okay, I can do that. So, I mean, it's just about asking, I think. Okay. Yeah. I was a bit confused by what is meant by just be there, but that makes sense where it's just like, yeah, make people feel included. And so a good amount of our audience is like still in school, whether it's undergraduate or graduate programs. So we were just curious, you know, how did your college experience differ because you were a minority in the field of MSE? Did you learn anything from there that you'd like to share with our audience? You know, it's a, it's a bit of a hard question, if I'm honest, because the only experience I have, right, is my own. It's interesting. I, I think one thing I will say is I remember frequently questioning if I belonged or not. There was a lot of, you only got in here because you're a woman. And not just like passive aggressively, like literally said to my face. This was, I mean, this was the height of affirmative action too, right? But like a lot of people said these things to me and to other women. And a lot of men made it clear they felt like I'd been given preferential treatment because I was a woman. And honestly, I didn't know if I could argue with them. I mean, I could say, no, I'm not, you know, no, but like, I don't know that I could believe it. Right. I didn't have any data around it. I didn't have any, I didn't have any information about how the application process worked. Right. I was 19. I didn't, I didn't know. And so for a long time, the effect that that had is it, it really undermined my confidence. And it, it also made it difficult for me to decide in the beginning how I wanted to present myself right? Like that's already a difficult period of time, college, right? You're still discovering your identity. You're still deciding who you want to be, how you want to show up. So for example, I had a lot of brothers and I, I have a lot of interest in common with them, right? Sports, video games, et cetera. And so there's a part of me that was like, should I just pretend to be, you know, like one of the guys? But I also felt like when I did that, I, I wasn't really myself and I was suppressing other parts of my identity that also mattered. And actually what ended up really helping me figure this out throughout college and and which I was incredibly fortunate to have was I had the opportunity to see women professors in my field that I could sort of try on as role models. Um, And it's one of the reasons that representation is, is so incredibly important. I remember distinctly that in the engineering department, there were three women professors, all of whom had very distinct personalities and all of whom had a very different method of dealing with being a minority. So one of them, for example, she was always I mean, impeccably and professionally dressed, usually in a suit. She never let you forget that she was a professional and she knew what she was doing. One of our professors was incredibly casual, very laid back, always was wearing, you know, jeans, worn sneakers everywhere she went. She did some really crazy, amazing research, actually. She was really down to earth. She was 
the absolute definition of being comfortable in her own skin. The third professor who I eventually went to work for was very feminine. And so what, what I mean by that is she always had this cute jewelry and the most adorable skirts and heels. She was very short. And but she breezed through the department and the lab like she was six feet tall and she knew what she was about. But she always went everywhere in her with her own sense of style. Uh, and it really gave me the freedom to sort of try on these different methods of managing my otherness, if you will. Um, and I think that really helped prepare me for that aspect of my career. And so ever since then, I've always sort of made it a point to show up authentically as exactly who I am, even if I'm the only woman there. Right. I think the idea or there's a sometimes a feeling, a burden of feeling like you have to represent everybody from your minority whenever you show up in a space isn't only. And it's really hard to resist the urge to feel like you need to do that or to resist the urge to feel like you need to overcorrect your otherness and diminish your otherness to make, bring, you know, make it less apparent. It takes a lot of courage to not do those things, right? To show up exactly as you are as an individual, not as a woman or a black woman or a gay woman or whatever, right? Like just to show up as a woman, whoever you are. That's, I think, the thing that that taught me how to do. And I guess that just led me to another conversation that I had where in the past, it was kind of, I guess, almost encouraged where you had to act like a man to be able to climb the ladder in a way and be like a good leader. And so that seems to be very different, like a contrast between what you just said, where it's like, just be your authentic self and you can grow as a leader in your own personal leadership style. Yeah, it's actually super important. And, and I've had that idea reinforced to me, actually. The longer I've been around, the longer I've been in the field, the longer I've been in my career, the more I see other senior women who show up exactly as they are, right? Unapologetically. You can show up unapologetically as who you are and still have success because success under the guise of somebody you are not is a lot less satisfying, to be totally honest. And then so... As someone who is a minority in your field, how do you exert yourself in a room full of men, right? I'm sure it's a daunting task, but how do you find success in your field through that manner? I took a really interesting training on exactly sort of this once, probably about four years ago. And there's not one way to do that. Everybody has a different, it goes back to figuring out who you are and embracing who you are um, and highlighting who you are. So there's different ways of doing that. I actually worked with and met this woman who's a partner um, at McKinsey in this, in this training where she spoke so quietly, very quietly, just, and, and the effect that that had was that when she spoke this quietly, everybody got really quiet to listen to her, right? That's very different than, I mean, my style, I'm big and I'm loud and I'm here and like, this is how we're doing it. And we're going to roll with it, right? I'm very informal, I like to joke, like, I don't think I've, I've not worn a suit to McKinsey since my interview. I wear a cardigan in any color of the rainbow, but I'm not wearing a suit jacket. I don't like suit jackets. And so like, it's just interesting. I, I There's examples of women that I've worked with, but it's more about embracing your own style, right? All the professors that were in my department had their very own sense of style. They were all equally successful, but they were successful in a way that allowed them as individuals to be successful, Right. One person's method of, this, of success won't be yours necessarily because you aren't them. And so a lot of it is deciding and figuring out who you want to be and leaning into who you want to be. 
because we're all very different. We're all very unique, right? And so the things that make us successful or make us, you know, brilliant are different and are unique. And so whether you're a quiet person who is the last to speak on an issue, but says, says whatever she has to say in a clear, decisive way at the end and a quiet voice so that everybody has to listen to you. You know, you don't have to be the first one to talk in the room. You don't have to be the loudest one in the room. You just have to know who you want to be and do it. And I'm sure that all of us, but maybe minorities specifically have trouble with knowing who you want to be. And you talked about having role models, but do you have any other ideas or things that help you find out who you wanted to be along your journey? I Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it is who you are and who you want to be is going to evolve a little bit. And again, I think representation is a super important part of this because the more people you see being successful, the more patterns or ideas of what success can look like you will have, right? And so I think part of it is is looking around at what other people do or the way other people are successful, even if they don't look just like you. Like I've learned or adapted many elements of my leadership style from men that I've worked with. So part of it is looking for role models that you respect, right? That you have a lot of respect for and trying to think about why do you respect them? What about the way they are as a person, as a leader, as a coach, as a teacher speaks to you and trying to understand what elements of that you find valuable. But part of it also is thinking about and reflecting on who you are. I was given some really good advice to, to keep a success journal. And so every day to write down in a journal, three things that I did well, right. And it could be little things like, you know, today I was compassionate because I helped John pick up all of his lab samples whenever he accidentally knocked them all over the floor because I totally understand what that's like to have to redo a bunch of tedious work. And I wanted him to not feel alone, right? And so I stopped what I was doing and I helped him. So whatever it is, like writing down, like what are the things that you like about yourself that you're proud of doing, that you're, you know, how you show up that you're proud of. And then when you do that, what happens over time is you'll see these themes that show up, Right. And then it allows you to sort of understand over time, what are the things that you do that you value or respect within yourself? And so you can kind of start to use that to figure out a little bit who you want to be intentionally. And so I think that's something that also really helped me. This is something that I've definitely found challenging in my first few months here. And I've heard other people dealing with the same thing, but it's the idea of in a meeting when I have an idea, not like feeling maybe like dumb about it, or maybe it's not the best idea. So I kind of like keep quiet. And then maybe someone else says the same idea. And I'm like, dang, I should have just spoken up. What advice would you have for people like me who deal with that, especially as a new hire? in like just these new settings where you're at kind of the lower rung on the ladder. I think I would ask you why you didn't speak up in the first place. If you had this idea in this meeting, like what kept you from speaking up? I think it was potentially the idea that I didn't fully understand like the scope of what was being asked and not maybe having like a full understanding of the problem. And so just really that maybe led to just not wanting to feel like I don't know exactly what's going on, you know? Like, I, I just feel like other people maybe knew this, the idea. You get to this fear, right? This, this fear of, I don't want to be wrong or I don't want to seem like I don't know what I'm doing. And, and that's the key to, you have to get over that fear, 
Mm-hmm. You have to get over the fear of being wrong or the fear of looking stupid. Like nobody, like when, when you learned how to ride a bike, you did not get on a bike and immediately ride a bike down the street, right? Like you fell down a lot. <laughs> You're going to fall down. Like Brene Brown has some really great words to say about this. And I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown. But she's like, you will not, if you, the, if you're going to have the courage to try, you are going to fail. It is not about an, if you fail, it is a, when you will fail and you will fail and you will fail, you will fail probably catastrophically, but you have to try anyway. Right. So you have to get over this fear of failing or fear of looking stupid or fear of not being awesome. Because if you don't get over that fear, you won't ever actually try. Right. So you have to like dare to try. And so you have to kind of, I mean, and there's tactical ways you can frame your idea or frame your question, right? You could, you could say, you know, I'm not totally sure I completely understand the question, but if I understand it correctly, here's what I think, right? So there's ways, there's tactical ways you can sort of con, you know, condition what you say, which might help you in the interim, get over that fear. But fundamentally, the issue you're, you, you often have in those situations where you're new is a fear of failing. Yeah, that's definitely been something that I've been dealing with or just like really reflecting on and realizing that that fear of failure is like, it's important to, you know, it's like a muscle that you have to build where you're just like dealing with that and not afraid of failure, right? You have to keep trying new things that make you uncomfortable and kind of being comfortable with being uncomfortable, if that makes sense. It does. It completely makes sense. You have to be comfortable (laughs) with being uncomfortable. None of us grow or learn unless we put ourselves outside of our comfort zone. And with coming outside of your comfort zone comes a lot of things, right? There comes excitement and challenge and opportunity, but also stress and anxiety and nerves and fear. And so you have to put yourself out in that space if you want to grow. So you have to find a way to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I think that it is a muscle, right? The more you do it, the a little bit easier it gets. It's not that you ever become completely comfortable with the idea that you're going to look stupid, right? But you you get... I think you have more data points to say nothing terrible is likely to happen. So another trick you can try is to ask yourself, what's the worst thing that would happen? Mm -hmm. Because I think oftentimes the actual worst thing that could happen is a lot less than what you tend to assume without saying so, right? Nobody's going to fire you in that meeting because you didn't fully understand the question or you didn't fully understand the problem, right? We've all been new before. We we totally get it, right? Nobody's going to fire you on the spot. Like, that's a stupid idea. Get out. <laughs> like, turn in your badge on your way down the hall, right? Like, so, but I think that saying it out loud and saying, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? Oh, I might, you know, look a little silly in front of this, you know, these peers. Okay, right? That's very different than what I had built up in my mind as, as being the worst thing that could happen. And it's also important on that note to understand that, like, what you think others will think of you is probably not the case. Like they're probably not going to think, Oh, that person's stupid or anything like that. Like they've been in your shoes before and it's better that you're asking questions and and talking like that's good for growth in in that role. Oh, absolutely. Like, gosh, nobody's going to think anything terrible of you. We've all been there. Like everybody was new at one point. You know, it's the first time you've been new, but it's not the first time any of us have been new or seen anybody who's new, right? Like, I mean, you're not going to do anything that's going to be absolutely nothing anybody has seen before. So I think, yeah, just remembering that, you know, you're, yes, you're the center of your own story, but you're not the center of everybody else's. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's really important, especially when we all remember our worst failures. But if we all re- only remember our worst failures, then no one else is going to remember it. So I think it's just helpful to know that you might remember it, but everybody else is so busy with their own ideas about what everybody else is thinking about. <laughs> it usually just becomes this loop where you're the only one that cares. And if you can get over that hump, then you can start making change like you're talking about. Yeah. And I think the other thing is to remember to focus. Like we all spend a lot of time in our heads doing a lot of negative self-talk. And one of the other reasons that I found the, the journaling exercise to be so helpful is to break myself of the habit of negative self-talk and to force myself into building a habit of positive self-talk, right? That's not a habit a lot of people build. And I think particularly whenever you are a minority or in a situation where you're regularly outside of your comfort zone, you know, it's really hard to not internalize a lot of negative self-talk. And so finding ways to equally praise yourself for the things you do well or the good ideas, right? Like talking about the things you do well, remembering your biggest successes the same way and obsessing over them the same way you obsess over your failures is equally important. My husband actually told me this actually recently. He said, you know, if you celebrated your successes the same way you like basically managed your bad days, it would be very different. Like it's one thing to come home from a terrible meeting and say, I've had a terrible week. And like, I want to have a glass of wine. I've had a terrible week. He said, you should come home and be like, I, you know, kick butt in that meeting today. And I had a great week and I'm having a glass of wine. <laughs> like you should celebrate your successes with the same enthusiasm that you commiserate your failures. And that was actually really insightful and something I've tried to carry with me since then. But we don't do that often enough, right? Like we don't celebrate our successes to the same degree that we obsess over our failure. Yeah, that's for sure. I like usually consider myself a very positive person, but even in that sense, like that's something I could do better is like celebrating successes, you know, and just like being positive about what I've accomplished on any given day or on every, any given week. So that's definitely something I'll take forward. But I was just wondering, you know, you gave a few examples of past experiences. Are there any other moments of allyship that you've experienced that you'd like to talk about that have been super impactful? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting, right? We've talked a lot about allyship and we've talked a lot about what does that look like in the workplace and what can it look like in academia? But, you know, I think that one of the other issues that perhaps is getting more attention now because of the pandemic is the way that actually a lack of parity in household responsibilities affects working women. There's a great article in The Atlantic back in 2019 that, that talked about that, you know, it said when Americans think about gender equality, they think about the workplace but we should actually be thinking about the household. It's still a really widely held belief that women should be taking on the majority of household responsibilities, right? Even if it's not a conscious belief, it is still a big place where both men and women have been conditioned to believe like this is the way it should work. And there's a large burden placed on women in managing childcare and managing like housework, et cetera. So even before the pandemic, Married women with children spend almost twice as much time on housework and childcare than their spouses. And then there's this assumption that as more women have gone back to work, like that's less than we used to spend, but it's not. Working moms actually, even before the pandemic, were already spending more time on childcare today than they did even in the 60s. Right. So, I mean, think about that for a second. In the 60s, when less women were working, they actually spent less time then on childcare that married working women spend today. Wow. And it's particularly fascinating when you look at 
breadwinners, right? Or uh, heterosexual women who are out earning their husbands, which by the way, is about 30% of married women in the US and it's growing. And so even in those, what's fascinating to me is that even in those households, research shows there's a deep discomfort with the idea of acknowledging women as a breadwinner, right? And so perhaps in response to that, what actually happens, what we see is that women in those households take on even more housework, right? The more that their share of the household income increases, the more housework they take on, which just is baffling, right? So like the more economically dependent men are on their wives, the less housework they do. And so what's happening is that the more that women are successful at work, the more they're effectively penalized at home. And this is still a huge problem, right? So I think this also probably helps explain why so many women struggle to climb the corporate ladder, right? Out of a combination, sure, of a lack of opportunity or a lack of support in the workplace. But even when they have the opportunity, there's still very much this deep-seated sense of shame from either themselves or their spouses. There's this sense of guilt that drives an increased share of the load at home in response. And we've seen this backfire in, in huge ways during the pandemic. Right. As households went into quarantine, as children were kept home from school, it disproportionately affected working women than working men. And so we have more like more women have been leaving the workplace in the last year and a half than ever before. And it has a lot to do with this extra burden at home that a lot of women carry. And so it's funny, you know, you asked me about like experiences of allyship. Right. So my biggest and most unfailing ally in my entire life has been my husband. So we met whenever I was first starting my PhD. I was, I was in my first semester at Georgia Tech doing my PhD. And we very quickly right, became, we, we started living together and building a life together. We got married. I think I was a third year PhD student, probably when we got married. And he adores his job. But what he always knew, and we always knew that his work was less stable and would make less money than whatever I went on to do whenever I finished my PhD. Like we knew that. And so we had always, we always knew that when we had kids, he would be the one to quit working and stay home, right? And that he would be the one who would take over running our household. So he's, he's our CFO. He's our chief family officer, right? Like very much, he is the first point of contact on the kid's school. He was always the first person that daycare called. And even still, right? Like we'd fill out, I'd make it very clear on the paperwork. We'd make it very clear with daycare. You call him before you call me. They would still call me first. Wow. And I'm like, okay, well, you need to call my husband because I'm in Nashville working. I am not there. You need to call him. Right. He would do drop off and pick up every day and they would still call me. And it was obnoxious. His dentist would call me to reschedule his appointments. And I'm like, why? He's an adult. Like he's a grown man. He can make his own appointment. <laughs> but these things still persist, I think, in a way that we don't acknowledge or think about or work on. And so like one of the biggest reasons that I'm still at McKinsey, one of the biggest reasons that I've grown with the company the way that I have is because he does those things. And I mean, we keep in mind, right? We've been married for seven years. We've been together for 10. This was not like an instantaneous thing. It took us a long time to get comfortable with it. We also had to uncondition ourselves in the same way as everybody else. But if we don't find ways to solve household inequalities, we cannot solve broader gender parity issues in the workplace because it starts at home like in a really big, meaningful way. And so it, it's something to keep in mind, right? Like it's actually a really, it's a really important thing. And I think we've realized throughout this pandemic how important it is because because those things have sort of come together in this way that's, that's kind of backfired for women recently. 
So what are like the action items that we could take as a society or as, as individuals from all of that, right? Because it seems like it's a mindset that's instilled by social tendencies. So how can we like move forward from this now that we're realizing that this is a prominent issue? I mean, some of it is just calling it out, right? So like when his dentist calls me, I'm like, I'm not making his appointment for him. Here's his phone number, call him. And I hang up the phone, right? Like, I mean, I'm not making his, like don't enable the behavior for starters. And part of it is, you know, continuing to push for visibility. Like people used to say the worst things to him whenever he would take the kids. I remember when he would go out with the kids when they were little, they would say, oh, it's mommy's day off. And he, he would get so offended because he's like, I'm also a parent. I'm not babysitting. I'm a dad. Right. So like part of it is also ironically being an advocate for men in those situations. Right. Like he's equally capable of taking care of himself, of speaking up for himself, of making his own appointments, of doing his own laundry, of cooking, right? Like, so in a weird way, it's it's about me being an advocate and an ally for him in the same way. So I think some of it is just, be, first of all, being aware, right? Being aware of the way that household burdens sometimes get defaulted to women, right? And doing what you can to make sure that's not happening. Having open and honest conversations about it, even if it means like tracking who does laundry, who does dishes, who does cooking, right? Paying attention to those things. But it also means like not disparaging men who are doing those things, right? And celebrating men who do those things in the same way. And I think that that's something we are getting better about doing, but just not sort of assuming that if you see a guy cooking or out with his kids, right? That he's like babysitting for his wife. That's not how this works, right? Like he's being a full parent. And it means pushing for things like, like now the kids are in school now. We just, we've just registered them for school. And there's an option now actually in the registration for us to list which, which parent is the first point of contact, which didn't used to be the case, right? It just was by default, it was the mother. And so now there's this option. So starting to push more for these kinds of things, that kind of visibility is important, right? So it's a lot of the little ways we show up as being an ally, just like you would in the workplace, but doing it at home too. So you covered a lot and a a lot of eye-opening stuff, especially from someone who's not a woman. So I guess for all our female listeners out there, what advice would you give for them to have a successful career in engineering? And maybe just more generally, after you talk about that, just how to be a good ally for the rest of us. My advice for women, first and foremost, would be be honest with yourself and what you want. And I mean that because being fierce and confident in your ambitions starts with acknowledging them to yourself. And if you want to be the president or you want to win a Nobel Prize or you want to fly planes or chair a department, just say so, right? You don't have to write it in the sky, but stand in your bedroom and look in the mirror and say it out loud. I mean, it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I finally stopped apologizing to people, either out loud or in my head, for having high expectations of myself, of the people I worked with, of the people that worked for me. But you have to learn to take your goals seriously and your ambitions seriously before anybody else will. And that's actually a really big first step for a lot of women. So start with that, right? Start by being honest with yourself and for not apologizing for the things that you want. I think the second thing I would advise them is build a network, right? We all benefit from different perspectives, but also like just from the friendships and the empathy that comes with the community, right? So just having a place that you can go where you can be yourself and where you don't feel alone is incredibly important. I think it's why representation in your in 
you know, in the field is very important so that you have role models, but also like groups like women in material science or society of women engineers, right? The point of having communities is for that reason, right? It's why those communities are so important because the reality is that none of us do what we do alone, right? So let yourself be a part of a community and let that community help you get through life. I mean, you have to, you're not going to do it by yourself and that's okay. You, they're not brownie points for getting through your career, or getting through life by yourself. I think that in terms of advice for people who want to be an ally to women, it starts with just listening, right? It starts with being aware. It starts with, first of all, noticing that in a room of 40 people, there's two women, right? It starts with literally noticing. And it starts with noticing, like, how much are they talking? Or are people talking over them? Are people interrupting them? Are they saying an idea and then somebody else is repeating it? So that you can do little things like say, you know, I really, I agree with Rebecca. Building one on Rebecca said, I think that, right? And so saying, like literally just playing it back and saying it back, right? So it's with just being aware. Um, and I think that's actually the hardest step because you, you don't know what you don't know, right? And so I think the hardest part is to just find little ways to pay attention and pay more attention. And if you can do that, like we all generally want to do the right thing. So if you can find a way to notice, then you'll be well positioned to start to help, right? By listening, by asking questions, by supporting, by adding your voice. But it starts by noticing that it's happening. Yeah, no, this is a, a conversation that I want to continue to go back to after we publish it and just continue to listen to it because I think it's important to just like keep this in mind moving on in my career. So I just wanted to thank you for joining us today, Ashley. There's a lot I could take away from this and I hope our listeners can do the same. Yeah, of course. Thank you guys very much for having me. And um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the It's Material World podcast. If you enjoyed the show, consider subscribing on your favorite podcast app so you never miss another episode. If you'd like to meet other passionate material scientists and discuss all things MSE, join our Discord community using the link in the show notes below. If you want to support us and the growth of this podcast, or just show off your love for material science, visit our shop at itsamaterialworldpodcast.com forward slash shop, or by using the link in the show notes. If you have any feedback, we would love to hear it. We want to grow this show with our community's input, so you can message us via email or any of our social media platforms, and those links will also be provided. We'll see you soon, and in the meantime, go change the world.